Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled The Gift That Matters Most, was given on December 6th of 1986 by J. Richard Clark, then the second counselor in the presiding bishopric of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Realizing uh, the time of year it is, that you're getting ready for finals and the kind of hours that you keep, And realizing what I've been through the last few days, I want you to know that I feel just like one of you. I don't know which of you it is I I feel like, but whoever it is probably ought to be home in bed. I would like to uh, begin tonight by reading a story by Rex Knowles. He titles it Gifts Gifts of the Wise Children, or Gold, Circumstance, and Mud. He said, as a week before Christmas, I was babysitting with our four children while my wife took the baby for his checkup. Babysitting to me means reading the paper while the kids mess up the house. Only that day I wasn't reading. I was fuming. On every page of the paper, as I flicked angrily through them, gifts glittered and reindeer pranced, and I was told that there were only six more days in which to rush out and buy what I couldn't afford and nobody wanted. What I asked myself indignantly, did the glitter and the rush have to do with the birth of Christ? There was a knock on the door of the study where I had barricaded myself. Then Nancy's voice, Daddy, we have a play to put on. Do you want to see it? I didn't. But I had fatherly responsibilities, so I followed her into the living room. Right away I knew it was a Christmas play, for at the foot of the piano stool was a lighted flashlight, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a shoebox. Rex, age six, came in wearing my bathrobe, carrying a mop handle. He sat on the stool, looked at the flashlight, and Nancy, ten, draped a sheet over her head and stood behind Rex and began, I'm Mary and this boy is Joseph. Usually in this play, Joseph stands up and Mary sits down. But Mary's sitting down is taller than Joseph standing up. So we thought it looked better this way. Enter Trudy, four, at a full run. She never learned how to walk. There were pillowcases over her arms. She spread them wide and said only, I'm an angel. And then Anne, eight, I knew right away she represented the wise men. In the first place, she moved like she was riding a camel. She had her mother's high heels on. (laughs) 
and, and she was bedecked with all the jewelry available. On a pillow, she carried three items, undoubtedly gold, frankincense, and myrrh. She undulated across the room, bowed to the flashlight, to Mary, to Joseph, to the angel, and to me, and then announced, I am all three wise men. I bring precious gifts, gold, circumstance, and mud. That was all. <clears throat> the play was over. I didn't laugh. I prayed. How near the truth Anne was. We come at Christmas burdened down with gold, with the showy gift and the tinsley tree. Under the circumstances we can do no other circumstances of our time and place and custom. And it seems a bit like mud when we think of it. But I looked at the shining faces of my children as their audience of one applauded them and remembered that a child showed us how these things can be transformed. I remembered that this child came into a material world and in so doing, eternally blessed the material. He accepted the circumstances, imperfect and frustrating, into which he was born, and thereby infused them with the divine. And as for mud, to you and me it may be something to sweep off the rug, but to all children it is something to build with. Children see so surely through the tinsel and the habit and the earthly to the love which in them all strains for expression. Now I realize that that story carries a little, a little risk because it's so interestingly told, but I suppose we, we look to the gifts of children and by children we are taught so often. Christmas is, is so often interpreted by children. There was a seventh grade that uh, I have record of at Christmas time in High Point, North Carolina. And the teacher asked, I'm sorry, they're fifth grade children, to answer this question. If you could give any gift you wanted to, what would you give and to whom? Here's some of the students' re responses. John Brandon says, The gift I'd like most to give would be love, because it lasts forever and never grows dull, and I can give it to anybody I like. Fonda Hunter said, If I could give one gift, I would give it to my parents, if I could get them to get, to get together again and get along together and live together forever year after year, month after month. If I could give that gift, I'd give anything in this world if they'd live together and make up their minds if they're going to live together. Amanda Green said, I'd give a small orphan child friendship to the poor, excuse me, fun and a home where he'd be happy. And I'd tell him never to be sad. Laurie Kerr said, I'd give jobs and good homes to the poor and stop poverty all over the world. 
And then Larry Shaw, I'd like to give happiness to the people that have not smiled. And one more said, if I had one gift, I'd give it to my mother. I'd give her a washer and a dryer because I love her and because she works so hard for all of us. Sylvia Johnston finally said, I'd give my crippled grandmother the power to walk. She stays alone in her home in South Carolina. We left our dog down there to keep her company. She seems real happy that we came, but she gets sad when we leave. She stayed two years in our house, but she wanted to go back home because she thinks that she's too much trouble, but she's not. If you had the power to give one gift, what would the gift be and to whom would you give it? I've been pondering that the last couple of days. Not the gift you would like to receive, but what gift would you like to give that would make you the most happy this Christmas? Well, as I uh, focused on the gift that I'd like to give, I believe that I would go to the statement made by Moroni. And I'd like to give this gift to my family more than anyone else. For he said, Come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God, and with all of your might, mind, and strength. I would wish that same gift to all of you tonight. I would wish that same gift to all of mankind, because I believe that that transcends every gift. I believe it's the gift that is needed most. It is certainly the gift that I'd like to give most. I know to many of you that Valentine's Day is the official day of love. But when, when understood, the day we have set aside to honor the birth of Christ stands preeminent. In celebrating this great day, we see the greatest act of love demonstrated that has ever been given. As we read, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that the world through him might be saved. Christmas season is a wonderful season because it precedes the new year. It begins to temper us, begins to help us to search our hearts deeply and with introspection about what kind of a year have we had. What are our essential values? What are our most important to us in our lives. And then we know that as we come to the first of the year, we'll be thinking again about New Year's resolutions. But I believe it's the pre-resolution time as we go through this great religious celebration that help us, helps us to put things in perspective probably more than, than any other uh, experience that we could have which would be so beneficial in helping us to to plan our next year and the many years beyond. Now I believe there are probably two great words which suggest a challenge to all of you. Those two words uh, are change and choice. In an excellent essay, Brother Lowell Benyon suggested that there are two worlds. First, the physical world, the world of reality. That's everything that exists. The laws of nature all around us. 
Now, we as individuals are quite powerless because um, these great laws always existed. We didn't have a whole lot to do with them, and we don't have a whole lot to do with them now. There are also many other things within this great staggering world that we live in. World politicians and energy czars, hijackers and highway drivers, we seem to be at mercy, at the mercy of all of these. They are also beyond our control. But he said, within this great staggering world of reality, there's also another world which is even more important. And he says that is the world of choices, that, excuse me, the world of values. He said, it's a world of my own choosing and building. Within this bewildering world of reality, I make choices. I choose those things which I prefer, things I desire, things which are most precious to me. I place value on them. They become the things that matter most. As I decide on these values and live by them, I gain a sense of individuality, a feeling of creativity, of self-determination. Life becomes meaningful and purposeful. I can take command and feel secure. Happiness evolves as we learn to live by the things that matter most. Because, he said, we, we become the values we live by. I was thinking about this statement of Brother Banyan, and, and I recalled with you the, uh, the great event in the Book of Mormon where <clears throat> a great prophet stood chained before a wicked king. And in his last little while before he was killed, he bore, without any hesitation, one of the most powerful testimonies of the Christ that I believe is recorded in literature. Now, of course, the wicked king and his court generally re rejected the message. But there was one young priest whose heart was touched, and he believed, and his life became transformed. And this young priest, Alma, began in motion one of the greatest dynasties I think has ever been recorded in history because ten generations of leaders of the church came through this one decision, this one choice of this young priest. Just imagine, for over 500 years, the church was led by his descendants. And how blessed we are as we read their testimonies. Now tonight I have come to testify in behalf of Jesus Christ. How you accept him and how valiant you are in your testimony of him will have an enormous con compounding impact upon the church. That is, this concentration of young Latter-day Saints will have a compounding effect and great impact on the church for generations. Let me just illustrate it. I can't tell you if this story is true, but it's a good story. It's a fable <coughs> of a young Chinese emperor who became bored and wanted to have uh, someone relieve that boredom with a new kind of game or amusement. And so he sent out word that he wanted uh, that he would give a, a reward to anyone who could invent a game or amusement that would uh, that would uh, help him be relieved of his boredom. And so a young inventor came along and he, and he had a board with him with 64 squares and a bunch of little carved uh, 
images which he called pawns, and he sat down with the emperor and he taught him how to play a game which he called chess. He was so delighted with the game that as the emperor was that he said, this is more than I'd ever hoped for. I'm so appreciative that I'll give you anything in my empire as a reward. And as the story goes, the young inventor said, I don't want a reward. I'm happy that uh, it served its purpose. And he said, I insist on it. Anything in my empire is yours. He said, well, if you insist, then this is what I'd like to have you do. I would like you to, to put a kernel of wheat in the first square of this board. In the second square, put two kernels. And in the third square, four kernels. And the next one, 16. And continue compounding these kernels of wheat until you get to the 64th square. And that's all I want. The emperor was insulted. He said, I've given you your choice of any reward, and this is what you do. He called to his aide, and he said, take this guy out, get a sack of wheat, and pay him off, and get him out of here. What they discovered is they began to pay off the request. It was a figure of something like this. It starts with nine, and then there's a comma, and then there's two, two, three, three, seven, two, oh, three, six, Eight five four seven seven five eight zero eight kernels of wheat, which at that time I'm told was the equivalent of the world's supply of wheat for five years. <laughs> now the point that I want to make is this: <clears throat> you, as Latter Day Saint students, are committed to a testimony of Jesus Christ. Suppose this burns so brightly that you marry and, uh, and your husband or wife feels the same way you do about it. And you continue to have a wonderful Christian home, a home of faith and of love. And this testimony continues as you with four children, and assuming that every one of your descendants has four children, by the time you get to the fourth generation, you have affected the lives of 250 six direct descendants. Now suppose this continues on for ten generations. Your choice has affected the lives of a million people. Now you can work with that any way you want to, but I'm just trying to make the point that the choices we make in our lives are so powerful that when compounded, they can affect the the lives of many generations yet unborn. What will your children believe? What will your grandchildren believe? How strong will your faith follow after you? Who will you leave, or who will you uh, leave your children to, to teach and to instruct and to direct? Will you leave it to someone else? Will you be the commanding influence? Will you be with your children long enough so that whatever it is you have chosen and what you deeply believe, will those things affect their lives for good that will move on into the succeeding generations? Now I come to you as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I make no special claim to superior knowledge or spiritual gifts. My desire is to express the sincere feelings which I have for the Savior. 
and for our covenant opportunities to serve him. I hope <clears throat> that I may be able to strengthen your testimonies with a few things I may say in the remainder of this time that you may be able to magnify your life as a Latter-day Saint and as a Latter-day Christian. Now, there are a few false accusations disturb me quite as much as the one that says the Mormons are not Christians. We're seen by some uninformed critics as being cultists who are unworthy of full fellowship by the traditional family of Christian churches. Are we Christians? Naturally, we'd answer with a resounding yes. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. We declare with Peter that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with John, that grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. We are his church. We bear his name. And as his church, we are the repository of more information about him and from him than anyone else on the earth. Now, the writers of the four Gospels deal with only three years out of 33. They tell us, tell us of less than 40 days out of, those 33, uh, out of those three years in life of the Savior. And of these, only selected days that they deal only with fragments and shreds of information. Now, through his great American prophet, Joseph Smith, whom he has called as the prophet of the dispensation of the fullness of times, he has revealed himself. The Lord has opened the earth and vouchsafed to him the record by the descendants of Joseph who were brought here from the land of Abraham under his direction. The purpose that he might stand as his witness. And as he directed the establishment of his church in these latter days, he has revealed the essential doctrines and the instructions for the plan of, of salvation for true believers everywhere. From the Nephi records, we learn the inspired messages carefully selected by holy prophets of ancient America for us in this generation for the sole purpose that we might come to a knowledge of Christ. Now consider what this church has contributed to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. First of all, the testimony and the personal witness of Joseph Smith, who was the first since the meridian of time to declare with words of soberness that I saw, I know because I experienced. What a marvelous statement of fact. He then, through the inspired uh, records which he left us, both ancient records and also the revelations of the Lord has given us some very powerful information. First of all, as you know, the brother of Jared, who had a face-to-face a -face experience with the premortal Christ. Where anywhere would you go for information that would be so powerful and so moving about the Lord Jesus Christ before he took on a tabernacle of flesh. You know the incidents where he was in conversation with the Lord concerning light in the, in the, 
ships which had been prepared. And then he saw the finger of the Lord. And the conversation then pursues from the third chapter of uh, Ether. That the veil was taken off from, the, from off the eyes of the brother of Jared. And he saw the finger of the Lord, and it was as the finger of a man, likened to flesh and blood. And the brother of Jared fell down before the Lord, for he was struck with fear. And then he asked why he had fallen. And he said, I saw the finger of the Lord, and I feared lest he might smite me. For I knew not that the Lord had flesh and blood. And then the Lord said, Because of thy faith, thou hast seen that I shall take upon me flesh and blood. And never has man come before me with such exceeding faith as, as thou hast. And then you know what follows. That the Lord could not withhold his presence from the brother of Jared because of his mighty faith. And then he said that he was redeemed from the fall. You are brought back into my presence, therefore I show myself unto you. Behold, I am he who is prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. In me shall all mankind have light, and that eternally, even they who shall believe on my name, and they shall become my sons and my daughters. And never have I showed myself in a man whom I have created, for never has man believed in me as thou hast. Seest that ye are created after mine own image? Yea, even all men were created in the beginning after mine own image. This body which ye now behold is the body of my spirit. And men have I created after the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. Where would you go to get a description of the spirit of man that equals this testimony of the brother of Jared? So much controversy in the world over the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Consider in the 11th chapter of 3rd Nephi. But after the people were prepared through the, the testimony of the elements, and then the voice from heaven testified of the coming of the Christ, listen to this tender scene. Jesus said to his disciples, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and of my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do, going forth one by one until they had all gone forth and did see with their eyes and did feel with their hands and did know of a surety and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. And then we have in Latter-day Scripture two accounts in the 76th section and also 
in the 110th section, again, testimonies of certainty that they saw the God of heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery testified. And after all testimonies are given, we testify last, er, testify that he lives. Now I relate these to simply remind us all that we have so much. We have so many blessings of the knowledge of Jesus Christ through the restoration of the gospel. How much understanding would we have of the atonement of Christ without the record of the Book of Mormon? How much would we know about justice and mercy? Well, in summary, I'd simply say that from this great volume of the Book of Mormon, 522 pages, covering a period of some 1,000 years, records which have been accumulated and abridged simply to testify to the world of the reality of Jesus Christ. What a treasure for the world that they might know that he is who he claimed to be. And they never ever stop to think that the doctrine and covenants are the words of Jesus Christ. We have about 120 revelations at least given directly by him, containing over 200 pages of instruction by the Lord Jesus Christ to modern Israel, you and me, during this great period. Now we read in the book of John, Chapter 18, verse 37, of a marvelous dialogue that goes on between the Roman governor, Pilate, and Jesus. And Pilate's trying to figure it out. He doesn't know what to think of, of Jesus. He wants to know if he's a king. And he said in verse 37, Thou sayest that I am a king, but to this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now here's where I want to emphasize directly to all of us here. That as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ today, we have made a covenant that we too will bear witness to the truth, and in so doing that we will be witnesses of Jesus Christ. We make this covenant at the time of our baptism, as we read in, in Mosiah 18, that we, at least they at that time, covenanted that they are willing to stand as a witness for Jesus in all places, wherever they may be, under all circumstances. And then in the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, have you thought about the covenant that we have made as candidates for baptism? I would hope that we would be reminded of this and think of this as we partake of the sacrament as we renew, as we renew this covenant. All those who humble themselves before God 
and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the Church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Christ, having a determination to serve Him to the end, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into the Church. Now that's a pretty weighty obligation that we have agreed to. But I hope as we partake of the sacrament, as I said before, we'll recognize that we affirm that we do witness unto God the Eternal Father, that we are willing to take upon us His name. Now I would ask the question to you and to me, are we reliable witnesses? You see, BYU collectively represents one of the greatest witnesses of all the, to all the world of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are the product of the system, of the doctrines, of the principles. You are the product of the families, the parents who have sacrificed that you might be here. So much hinges upon the reliability of the witnesses for truth and of the Christ. I'd like to suggest some of the characteristics that uh, we might consider. You may have another list or some other ideas. I'd like to share mine. I realize that we're all in the process of becoming what we want to be. None of us has arrived at the place where we're satisfied. But I would think that first, a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ is one who loves the Lord and is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, he is one who has a genuine love for all the children of our Father, with a special feeling for those who need him the most, who maybe do not look like they even care or have any interest whatsoever or are not worthy of the blessings, the rebellious, the unconverted, the disbelieving. They need him more than anyone. And so important it is for those who know to share their love with those who need. It's easier to fellowship those who are faithful. But can we ignore the sick in spirit? and only reserve the medicine for those who are well. I believe a witness for Jesus Christ would practice integrity in all aspects of his life. I had an interesting experience a few years ago. I came down to conference, general conference from Idaho. I went to uh, purchase some merchandise at uh, ZCMI and to cash a check. They didn't know me and so they sent me up to the cashier. And so they asked for some identification, and I reached my wallet and took out some credit cards, and inadvertently my temple recommend came out. And the cashier said, I'll accept that. And I said, you'll accept what? 
And she said, your temple recommend is current, isn't it? And I I said, yes, it's current. She said, that's fine. Well, I thought about that. You know how you get an idea, and then pretty soon the idea gets you. And I thought about it all the way home, and I thought, wouldn't that be great if we had a Mormon credit card? (laughs) That a card-carrying Mormon could be dependent upon to keep his word and pay his bills. A card-carrying Mormon who's a teacher would teach until there was understanding. That may be a tall order. A mechanic who would fix automobiles. A tradesman who would be a craftsman. One who would practice integrity in every way. Wouldn't it be great to be a peculiar people based upon our honesty and not our word of wisdom? Or a former marriage practice? I think that's a stimulating challenge. I don't know how you'd like to be known as peculiar, but that's a peculiarity I'd like to see all over the world, that the Mormons and integrity were simply synonymous. I believe a witness for Christ would have has forsaken spiritual Babylon over the wickedness of the world. While in the world, <clears throat> striving to escape its, to escape its corruption. Now, this is a great challenge. We cannot be reliable witnesses with one foot in spiritual Babylon and the other foot inside the kingdom of God. We cannot straddle the fence. We've got to make a decision in our lives. The Lord Jesus Christ had a special attitude about those who couldn't make up their mind in the book of Revelations. I think that we ought to ask ourselves, are we trying to do both? Elder Hales in the temple the other day brought an interesting thought to our minds. He said, there was once a time when the standards of the church were here and the world was here. He said, the standards of the world are moving away. And some of our people are confused because they believe it's necessary to keep the distance between the two the same. And so as we continue this march, he said, as the world continues to ripen in iniquity, we can become confused if we try to maintain the same distance between the two. Now, I believe it's possible to become boiled a degree at a time in the waters of mammon. I believe we have to be careful that we don't become so open-minded That, uh, as George Bernard Shaw, I believe, says, we better be careful we don't get caught in the draft. We need to be sure that as the world changes, that we maintain and uphold our standards. What do you do for entertainment? The shows today, TV, are changing their standards. They're changing their rating system so that it'll be a little more appealing. Can you depend upon the rating system today? I heard uh, a couple of young people talking about a particular television show. They said, well, it wasn't too bad. A couple of three rough spots in it, a little adultery and murder and, and obscenity and, and uh, brutality and 
quarreling and profanity and dishonesty, but other than that, it was a pretty good show. I don't know what kind of, uh, I say, boiling system we're going through that uh, somehow black doesn't look like black anymore. We can become homogenized in our judgment, in our discrimination, in our values to the point when we can't discern between the two if we're not careful. It can happen gradually like freezing to death. We can become numb, seriously numb, before we even know it. I heard a couple of girls on the elevator in the church office building the other day. One of them said, well, I can't go to the whatever church meeting it was. That's my night for Dallas. I said, hey, maybe I didn't hear right. Uh, is that where we are? I believe a witness for Christ can tell the difference between the standards of Babylon and the standards of Zion. I think <coughs> that a witness for Christ develops a love for the scriptures and the word of the Lord through the living oracles. I just came back from Australia where President Dan Ludlow is presiding over a mission. I was impressed as he is teaching his missionaries to love the scriptures. I was even more impressed at the way his own children expressed a great love for the scriptures. Undoubtedly, they've grown up with it. To them, it wasn't a penalty. It seemed to be a great privilege to take time to discuss them, which they did beautifully. I believe a disciple of Christ and a witness for him is one who is developing the ability of communion with the Lord through prayer. Now, I didn't say just prayer. I said a communion. Some time ago, I heard one of the brethren say, I believe prayer is the most singular, important activity which gauges spirituality. He says, you think about it. When we are right with the Lord, we want to pray. We feel good about praying. We want to report to the Lord and talk with Him. If our heart is not right, that's what we don't want to do. We want to stay away from the Lord. And of course, that's the time when we need it most. I think I'm quoting accurately. When Brother Marin G. Romney told us one day that uh, when he was a 70 in the Salt Lake Valley, one of the presidents there, one of the quorums, they're asked to come in <clears throat> to have a meeting occasionally with the seven presidents during the time when uh, Elder B.H. Roberts was one of the seven presidents. He said that when he would pray, it was the most illuminating, uh, illuminating experience that he's ever had. He said, he talked to the Lord like no other individual I've ever heard. He said, I wanted to open my eyes several times to see if he's in the room. It's quoted to B.H. Roberts, who's perhaps the most prolific uh, writer in the history of the church said as a great intellect that he was that he considered it was his highest achievement after a lifelong of a lifelong period of association with the lord that he had learned how to pray the talent of spirituality exceeds all other talents and is within the grasp of all of us
Now, brothers and sisters, while the invitation to come unto the Lord is extended to all mankind, we have to respond individually. Salvation is an individual experience. As we ascend the mountain of the Lord, we discover that the path is steep and it's rocky. And we're tempted to leave the path and look for shortcuts. This always proves to be a hazardous, time-consuming experience and even fatal. I'd, I'd admonish you to follow the proven path. It may be steeper, but in the end it's certainly easier. You've read in the Book of Mormon where Lehi and his family, just before they went into the, into the wilderness, were given a very curious compass they called the Leahona. Interesting thing about that compass was it didn't just tell you the direction you ought to go or that you were going, but the direction you should go. But it was controlled by the faith in God of Lehi and his family as they drew closer to the Lord than the compass worked so very well. I think that each of us has that kind of a compass. We are given the gift of the Holy Ghost. The closer we live to the Spirit, the closer will be our adherence to the path of righteousness. And we will eliminate so much error in our lives. If we live in such a way that we offend the Spirit, the Spirit withdraws itself. And we then are left to our own devices to the extent that we honor our covenants, the Lord will sanctify our lives and will guide us into all truth that keeps us on the path that leads to eternal life. Now, if we yield to the enticing temptations of Satan, then we have to remember that Satan has no power over us that we don't give him. We first must reject the Spirit before He has power over us. And so is this relationship with the Spirit that is so important for us to remember. Now let us not gamble with our souls. There are some who ask, what does it matter if we indulge in a few pursuits of the flesh? We can always repent. Now they say, like Matthew Arnold said, we do not what we ought what we ought not, we do, and lean upon the thought that chance will bring us through. Now this is dangerous thinking. How much time do we have? The gift of repentance must not be trifled with. God will not be mocked. Do you think our Savior would pay such a heavy price to atone for the sins of those who knowingly disregard and spurn his wonderful gift. I wish I could explain and describe my feelings of the Savior. I cannot comprehend the depth of his love. I don't understand how he could love enough to suffer as much as he has. That's beyond my comprehension. All I know is that I am grateful for the gift. I am grateful that we are members of a church who has the knowledge and the understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ as we do. In the words of the hymn, I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me.
confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me. I tremble to know that for me he was crucified, that for me, a sinner, he suffered and bled and died. Oh, it's wonderful that he'd, he should care for me, enough to die for me. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to me. I marvel that he'd descend from his throne divine to rescue a soul so rebellious and proud as mine, that he should extend his great love unto such as I, sufficient to own, to redeem, to justify. I think of his hands, pierced and bleeding to pay the debt. Such mercy, such love and devotion. Can I forget? No. No, I'll praise and adore at the mercy seat. Until at the glorified throne, I'll need kneel at his feet. Oh, it's wonderful that he should care for me and have to die for me. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to me. Brothers and sisters, I hope more than anything else that tonight you thought about you and the Christ. That you take the time to read the account of what he has done for us and I want you to know that I know that by the power of the Holy Ghost, I know that he lives. I know that he is the Messiah, that he is the creator of this earth, that he is the only begotten of the Father. I know that he appeared to the great American prophet, Joseph Smith. We do not worship Joseph Smith any more than the Jews and we Worship Moses for introducing to the Israelites Jehovah. But we love the prophet because he was a witness for Jesus Christ. And he brought us so much information about him and a powerful testimony that is a certainty in a day of doubt. We need that. And I testify to you that every man may know by the power of the Holy Ghost as I testify to you from the depths of my soul. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.